0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We of course welcome those who join us on our heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, For our guests in-house, we would ask that courtesy to see that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. That's always appreciated by the panelists. And of course those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. We're pleased today to co-host this program with the Douglas Leadership Institute. If I remember my history correctly, did Frederick Douglass speak to a joint session of Congress? Ah, come on! I've stumped you. I don't think so. Don't think so? I thought for some reason he did. We'll see.
2: Went to the White House. Oh, I know that. <laughs> Tell us something. Anyhow.
1: Now that we've stumped the panel before we've even started,
3: <laughs>
1: we know what experts we have. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, today's program at Heritage is also hosted by our B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics. The center focuses on teaching the foundations of liberty and the principles of the American political tradition to all those who shape public opinion. Please join me now in welcoming the director of that center, David Azrad, who also serves as the AWC Family Foundation Fellow. David.
2: Good afternoon. The boy who became Frederick Douglass was born into slavery on Maryland's eastern shore, about 60 miles from here, in February 1818, and given the improbably dignified name Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. He never knew his father, whom those around him suspected was his white master, and he barely knew his mother, who died when he was barely eight years old. His slave mistress taught him the rudiments of literacy, and he soon developed a voracious appetite for knowledge. He would ask schoolboys in the streets to teach him how to read, and he would pick up pages from books that he raked from, he said, the mud and filth of the gutter so he could learn to read at night. The climactic event of his youth came when he successfully resisted a cruel slave master's attempt to whip him. I was nothing before, he wrote in his autobiography reflecting on the episode. I was a man now. He escaped to freedom at the age of 20 and settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts. There he met William Lloyd Garrison and joined the abolitionists. His fame grew and in 1845, he published his autobiography, The Narrative and Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. He fled to Great Britain, and only returned to the US 20 months later after his English friends had purchased his liberty. In 1847, at the age of 29, he launched his own newspaper, the North Star, and that forced him to start to study the American founding more carefully and eventually led him to the conclusion that the Garrisonians were wrong. The founders may not have emancipated the slaves, but the principles and words they enshrined in our founding documents were resolutely anti-slavery. His tireless and forceful advocacy on behalf of emancipation caught the eye of President Abraham Lincoln, who met with him at the White House three times. Lincoln would later tell a colleague that he considered Douglas, and I quote, as one of the most meritorious men, if not the most meritorious man in the United States. Douglass spent the last 30 years of his life after the Civil War advocating for the civil rights of former slaves and defending the cause of integration. He died right here in Washington, D.C. on February 20th, 1895. 200 years after his birth, Douglas endures unequaled, as the invincible adversary of racial despair and disaffection, the preeminent apostle of hopefulness and the American promise of liberty and justice for all. To discuss his legacy and his significance in American political thought and history, we are very pleased to have here with us a distinguished panel. Peter C. Myers is a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and was a visiting fellow right here with us at the Heritage Foundation last year. He is the author of two fine books, one on John Locke and one on Frederick Douglass, and has also published numerous articles, book chapters, and book reviews on a variety of uh, topics, including a very fine essay on Frederick Douglass's political thought that is available outside if you would like to pick up a copy. He's currently researching a book on the idea of colorblindness in America. Diana Schaub is a professor of political science at the University of Loyola, at Loyola University, pardon me, in Maryland. From 2004 to 2009, she was a member of the President's Council on Bioethics. She's the author of Erotic Liberalism, Women and Revolution, and Montesquieu's Persian Letters, as well as several book chapters and articles in political philosophy and American political thought. She's also the co-editor with Leon and Amy Cass of What So Proudly We Hail* the American soul in story, speech, and song. Reverend Dean Nelson is a licensed minister and ordained pastor who currently serves as the chairman of the Douglas Leadership Institute with whom we are co-hosting this event today. Reverend Nelson also serves as the National Outreach Director at Online for Life, as the chairman of the Frederick Douglass Foundation, and as the Senior Fellow of African American Affairs at the Family Research Council. He's a sought-after speaker and frequently gives interviews on television and radio. Please join me in welcoming our first speaker, Peter
4: Myers. David, thank you very much. Um, Thanks to Heritage for hosting this. Thanks to all of you for coming to to listen and to talk to us. Um, And it's great to be back here. Mark Twain copied uh, a friend's remark into his notebook. The remark was, I am not an American. I am the American. That's a claim to be the American, the exemplary representative American. That very few Americans could plausibly make. Twain could. Ben Franklin could, in a sense, did. Abraham Lincoln could, though he didn't. Perhaps some number of others could do so too. But among those others, no one could do so quite so interestingly, as could and did Frederick Douglass. Consider, like his country, Douglass rose from a low beginning to a great height. Like his country, Douglass gained freedom in a kind of revolutionary struggle, by his own virtue and against very great odds. Like his country, he matured into a world-renowned apostle of universal liberty. Like his country again, Douglas the individual was divided by race. Unlike America, he could not think of himself as conceived in liberty. But even in that respect, Especially, in that respect, he represents the larger American promise. The son of a white slaveholder and a black slave, Douglas became, along with Abraham Lincoln, post-founding America's most important exponent of the natural rights argument summarized in the Declaration of Independence. Pursuant to the same principles, he became America's most prominent representative of the aspiration toward racial uplift Reconciliation and integration. I say he became that. It didn't come naturally to him. In order to become the great apostle of those aspirations, Douglas had to overcome a sentiment about and among black Americans that is recurrently powerful in U.S. history, powerful in his day, powerful again in ours. What he had to overcome was the sentiment that to be black is to hold an identity in tension with even antagonistic to American identity. This is the sentiment most memorably expressed by W.E.B. Du Bois, now a larger presence in the minds of educated Americans than Douglass is, Du Bois who wrote in the most famous passage in his most famous book that as a black American, I quote now, one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. My my title for this talk is Frederick Douglass's Identity Politics. catchy in, a, in my lame academic way, uh, but I, I mean it only partly ironically. Douglas, especially in, in his younger years, felt that psychic dividedness every bit as acutely and painfully as Du Bois did. And I would suggest that nobody, not Du Bois, not anybody else, makes a better model or provides better advice for how to overcome it. In an 1847 speech, Douglass asked a troubling question. Speaking for black Americans as a class, he asked, what is my country? His exact words, what country have I? And he answered, I have no patriotism. I have no country. You might pause a moment to think about that. I mean, we who take for granted the having of a country. Would it not be a terrible thing not to have one? to have no country that honored and protected you as a member, no country to which, in which you belong, no country that belonged to you. Douglas made that speech at a a meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society, uh, which is an association founded by the man who was at the time America's leading abolitionist, William Lloyd Garrison. In 1847, Douglas was a faithful Garrisonian. And when he declared in that speech his profound alienation from the country of his birth, he was really rendering a personalized expression of what was standard Garrisonian doctrine. What alienated the Garrisonians from America, at bottom, was their opinion that the U.S. Constitution was decisively pro-slavery. Garrison, near the beginning of his career, Uh, in his characteristically florid language, called the Constitution, I quote now again, the most bloody and heaven-daring arrangement ever made by men for the continuance and protection of a system of the most atrocious villainy ever exhibited on earth, end quote. From that premise, he drew what he thought was the necessary inference, Garrison again, henceforth, the watchword of abolitionists must be disunion. No union with slaveholders. So the destruction of slavery, according to Garrison, required the destruction of America, of American constitutional union. And in 1847, that was Douglass's position too. And there's nothing very surprising in that. Douglas was a still quite young man in the 1840s, and Garrison was an early mentor. What is surprising? is how quickly and thoroughly Douglas came to reject the Garrisonian position. He launched his own abolitionist newspaper in 1848. And after spending a few years reading and rethinking, he announced that he had come to reject the Garrisonian doctrines of disunion and the pro-slavery constitution. The turnabout came partly for pragmatic reasons. First was the realization, as he would put it in a uh, speech on the Dred Scott ruling, that now I quote Douglas: it would be difficult to hit upon any plan less likely to abolish slavery than the dissolution of the Union, end quote. The disunion strategy would strengthen, not weaken, the forces of despotism in America. Again, from the Dred Scott speech, these Douglass' words uh, This is obviously Douglas's words. I couldn't couldn't come up with anything like this. If if I were on board a pirate ship with a company of men and women whose lives and liberties I had put in jeopardy, I would not clear my soul of their blood by jumping in the long boat and singing out No Union with Pirates. (laughs) My business would be to remain on board. Now... Even among slavery's opponents, the Garrisonians were not alone in wanting to jump ship. The counterparts to Garrisonian advocates of disunion were black advocates of emigration, led in the 1850s by Douglass' sometime friend, colleague, and rival, Martin Delaney. Emigrationists were never a majority of black Americans. But their arguments gained influence in those periods in which the prospects for freedom and equal rights appeared especially bleak. The decade of the 1850s was such a period. So, Douglass felt the need to respond to the Garrisonians and the Emigrationists. An invitation from the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society provided the opportunity. The occasion was the commemoration of Independence Day in 1852, and the result has been called the greatest of all abolitionist speeches. Douglass' Fourth of July oration presents his fullest reflections on the meaning of America and on the question that Du Bois would pose, the question of black identity in relation to America. It's a very complicated speech, and I regret the... Uh, time today, such as it is, permits only a brief word about its complications. But for much of the speech, the, the reader, the listener could be forgiven for thinking that Douglas had joined Delaney on the black nationalist side. Uh, Douglas begins by addressing the white members of the audience, who are most of the audience, telling them, in effect, this is how your national holiday appears to you. And what he says is positive. But the manner in which he says it suggests something in a very different spirit is going to follow. Um, Douglass addresses his audience in a chain of second-person pronouns, not our, your national independence, your political freedom, your father's, your nation. The driving spirit seems very little different from what animated that 1847 speech with which we started. Uh, Douglas again, this 4th of July is yours, he, he told his audience, not mine. Then he changes perspectives, um, that is, not the perspective of the white audience anymore, comes to the present and says, I quote him again, there is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Perhaps the worst of the nation's crimes to that point was the enactment of the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. Uh, Douglas called it that most foul and fiendish of all human decrees, a law that stands alone in the annals of tyrannical legislation. For black Americans, the effect of that law was essentially legalized kidnapping. Uh, it, it left many to conclude there was no protection by law for them anywhere in the United States and what followed was an upsurge in pro-emigration sentiment and also actual emigration. Douglas fully understood that sentiment, but he rejected it. He believed it self-destructive and he rejected it repeatedly over the course of his career. But the case against emigration, like the case against disunion, had to be framed also as a case for America. And so Douglass concluded the July 4th oration as he concluded virtually all of his speeches with an expression of hopefulness. This was not mere wishfulness. Douglass thought hopefulness in America was rational, grounded in evidence and reason, in part because of America's founding. America's revolutionary fathers, he said in that same 4th of July speech, were brave men. They were great men he said. They dedicated their country to eternal principles. Against the Garrisonians, also against those debauched, to use Lincoln's word by John Calhoun, he maintained that the founder's constitution is not pro-slavery. It is, I quote, Douglas, a glorious liberty document. That's good, but the, the, the case for hopefulness required much more. There is much more, um, uh, again, time permits only a little. At the conclusion of the 4th of July speech, Douglas says something particularly interesting um, and pertinent for us about the further grounds of his hopefulness. He says, a change has now come over the affairs of mankind. Developments in the modern world, crucially enabled by modern philosophy, were making slavery, he thought, increasingly impossible. He went on, I'm quoting again, the arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe, end quote. We're living in an age of commerce and enlightenment, uh, he thought, and those facts are closely related. I mean, Douglas is saying these things at the very beginning of the communications revolution that we're still in so monstrous an injustice as slavery, could only survive in a condition of seclusion. But in the modern world, that seclusion was becoming impossible. Quoting again, no abuse, says Douglas, no outrage can now hide itself from the all-pervading light, end quote. Douglass believed what Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine believed, about the irresistible power of the principles of natural right that freedom of speech, if properly protected, could and would propagate throughout the world. Now, it's easily understandable uh, in a way that Douglass believed so strongly in the power of speech. You know, if you think about it, Douglas was a man who almost literally talked his way from the very bottom to nearly the very top of American society But he didn't think speech was all-powerful. And he didn't think the fostering of a healthy sense of American identity was merely a matter of persuading people to believe in American principles. To cultivate a genuine sense of American identity requires more than agreement with its principles. It requires a sentiment, a sense of belonging and affection. It requires a love of America as one's own. And on this point, as on others, I think Douglas was a good American Lockean, a disciple of John Locke. This is what I mean. According to Locke, everybody knows, you own what you make, right? Now, that can apply to a country, uh, no less than to the material product of your, of your labor. What what Douglass wanted to teach his fellow citizens, his black fellow citizens in particular, was that we can build America. And in building or rebuilding it, we can make it our own. We can improve it by our labor, not only materially, but also culturally, also morally. But to do this, we have to cultivate what he called the staying qualities. We have to have faith in ourselves, and in the country. And that's why hopefulness was a moral imperative for Douglas, and why a spirit of alienation from the country was so dangerous. One last point in conclusion. Republics, Douglass liked to say, are proverbially forgetful. That means they're forgetful especially of their first principles. So Douglass made his career as one of 19th century America's two greatest apostles of the founder's vision of natural rights republicanism during a period in our history in which that vision and those principles were most deeply imperiled. We are now 200 years from Douglass' birth. And as Douglass himself would certainly say now, as he said in 1852, our business is with the present. We live today in another period of Republican forgetfulness, or worse. We live in a period in which many Americans have forgotten our principles or never learned them, in which many Americans think those principles at best archaic, at worst unjust, in which many young people, young men especially, grow up in the belief that they have no grounds for hope in their future, no reason to identify with their country. In which many of our educational institutions have become purveyors of alienation, teaching that racism in America is pervasive and permanent, and, it, and in which increasing numbers of students in those institutions regard freedom of speech as more a danger than a remedy for society's ills. At such a time, as we search for models of understanding and inspiration, it is, I think, a moral imperative for us to remember the life and thought of Frederick Douglass. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Frederick Douglass is best known as an activist. Much of his speaking and writing involved demands for justice. Justice towards blacks, justice towards women, justice towards laborers. Approached by a young man asking what he should do for the cause of racial justice, the elderly Douglas is said to have responded, agitate, agitate, agitate. However, this fabled agitator, with his eyes on a more just future, also devoted a goodly portion of his public speaking to commemorating the past, celebrating the founding ideals of the nation, praising those citizens and public figures who remained faithful to both the Declaration and the Constitution. In other words, he tried to foster a spirit of friendship and a unified national consciousness. Aristotle, the first political scientist, and in my view, still the best, called this homonoia, or like-mindedness. Like-mindedness, which is to say thinking the same about certain crucial matters is the form of friendship that should characterize fellow citizens. Aristotle claims that this like-mindedness is the greatest of goods for the political order, It lessens civic strife among the parts or parties that are always present in any large collective. Diversity, without this foundation, this underlying foundation of like-mindedness, is a recipe for discord. Like-mindedness allows cooperation and trust to replace contentiousness and suspicion. Aristotle argued that statesmen should pursue this sort of friendship, more than justice even, since civic friendship... Leads to justice, and it does so without having to involve the coercive bite of the law. In friendship, what is right and what is pleasing come naturally together. For a model of how to encourage this civic friendship, and to do so without sacrificing a commitment to agitation, I think there's none better than Frederick Douglass. He knew how to balance the politics of grievance with the politics of gratitude. Or it might actually be more accurate to say that because of his grateful temperament, Douglass's activism never descended into the politics of grievance and victimology. Always in his mind's eye, Douglas had a clear picture of the American future. Already in 1863, in the midst of Civil War, his hopefulness was such that he looked forward to a time when, as he put it, quote, the white and colored people of this country will be blended into a common nationality and enjoy together in the same country, under the same flag, the inestimable blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as neighborly citizens of a common country. Although there is some, uh, of course, some scholarly uh, and not-so-scholarly dispute about how to characterize Douglass's vision of America, uh, Pete and I, I think, agree uh, that Douglas is best understood as a classical liberal. He begins from the natural rights of each and every human being. Your rights are, with, are your own, and you are within your rights to insist that your government and fellow citizens respect your rights. Self-assertion is what is called for, both in securing rights and in exercising them. This is a demanding program. Douglass's shorthand formula for what is demanded of government is, quote, a fair field, and no favor. What does that mean? It means the establishment of equality before the law, which in turn means that race-based injustices would need to be dismantled, followed by vigilant anti-discrimination enforcement at all levels of government. Douglas also recommended certain carefully chosen forms of reparative justice, especially the provisioning of public education. But Douglas is emphatic, that there be no favors, no special categories created, no race-based privileges, no exemptions from a uniform standard. Because there are no favors, this program is demanding at the individual level also. Advancement depends on self-improvement, both moral and intellectual. Douglass' recommendation, which takes the same iterative form as his advice to that young man, is work, work, work. This vision, this classical liberal vision, we might wonder, what place does gratitude have? Gratitude might seem superfluous, even at odds with a situation where rights are deserved and success is earned. One could feel proper pride in one's achievements, but would one feel gratitude? To whom and for what? While it is true that Douglas is very much a proponent of proper pride, he is also ever ready to give thanks. You can see the inclination even in the passage that I read where he describes the American future. He did not say that blacks and whites would enjoy together their inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He said they would enjoy together the inestimable blessings of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One is grateful for a blessing. Perhaps rights, once secured by a good government, do become blessings. Particularly after the Civil War, Douglas regularly used ceremonial occasions to give expression to this sentiment of gratitude, and through that gratitude, to construct a shared understanding of the nation's principles and its past. There's a distinct genre of speeches like this. Let's call them speeches of remembrance. They're quite different in tone and purpose from the speeches and editorials devoted to the pressing issues of the day. Uh, Those policy pieces have titles like The Work Before Us, Woman and the Ballot, The Cooley Trade, Mixed Schools, Give Us the Freedom Intended for Us, The Nation's Problem, and Why is the Negro Lynched? Interestingly, In the final version of his autobiography, Douglass included an appendix containing the texts of two speeches. Out of a lifetime of speechifying, the two he chose were both commemorative addresses. The Oration in Memory of Abraham Lincoln, which dates from 1876, and his Anniversary Celebration of West Indian Emancipation, dating from 1880. In a short preface, he explains that his reason for including the second speech, the uh, West Indian Emancipation, was, quote, partly as a grateful tribute to the noble transatlantic men and women who brought about the end of slavery in the British Isles. There are other important speeches of remembrance also, most especially his two Decoration Day addresses, two later speeches about Lincoln, as well as eulogies of abolitionist allies, uh, eulogies of Wendell Phillips, Charles Sumner, and John Brown. These are all speeches in which Douglas is self-consciously shaping public memory, acting as an American homer, writing the epic by which we will remember the war. To get some sense of how he proceeds, let me say something about those two Decoration Day addresses. Uh, the first was given in 1871 and the second in 1882. What we now call Memorial Day began shortly after the Civil War as Decoration Day a day to strew with flowers the graves of the loyal dead. As time passed, as we strove to bind up the nation's wounds, there were those who called for the discontinuance of Decoration Day. Even such a radical, radical Republican as Charles Sumner proposed that Congress should ban the practice of displaying the names of Civil War battles on the Union regimental flags. Too triumphalist, he thought too much a reminder of sectional animosities. As early as 1871, Douglas noted this tendency to gloss over the difference between the parties to the conflict. He set about resisting it. Speaking in front of the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery, he pointed out that, quote, we are sometimes asked in the name of patriotism to forget the merits of this fearful struggle and to remember with equal admiration those who struck at the nation's life and those who struck to save it, those who fought for slavery and those who fought for liberty and justice. Although Douglas admits that unflinching courage marked the rebel not less than the loyal soldier, he insists that we are not here to applaud manly courage, save as it has been displayed in a noble cause. Douglas was worried worried that reconciliation between North and South would come to be based on forgetfulness and nostalgia, rather than on the new birth of freedom. Rejecting the falsity of nostalgia, Douglas sides with a fuller form of remembrance. We need to remember, he says, the causes, the incidents, and the results of this late rebellion. As for its cause? Douglas blames, quote, the dark and vengeful spirit of slavery. Of its incidents, he emphasizes the terrible ugliness of the war, a war which has made stumps of men of the very flower of our youth, which has sent them on the journey of life armless, legless, maimed, and mutilated, and swept uncounted thousands of men into bloody graves and planted agony at a million hearthstones. Despite these horrors, Douglas emphasizes the redemptive result. The victory of Union arms, bloodbought though it was, means a united country, where a star-spangled banner floats only over free American citizens in every quarter of the land. So, for Douglas, the graveside rituals and ceremonies of Decoration Day became, in effect, quote, an altar around which the nation can meet one day in each year to renew its national vows and manifest its loyal devotion to the principles of our free government. A decade or so later, 1882, Douglass delivered another Decoration Day address, this time in Rochester, New York, uh, in which he argued again, uh, and more strongly, for the continued observance of the Union holiday in the face of ever-growing demands for its abandonment. Douglas's defense takes a curious and an interesting twist. He is not by nature a conservative. It's not attached to tradition for its own sake. Once customs become empty, they should fade. Let not the smoke survive the candle, he says. However, Douglas is not prepared to part with Decoration Day just yet. In fact, he argues for its preservation on progressive grounds. Man is a progressive being, he declares, and memory, reason, and reflection are the resources of his improvement. Clearly for Douglas, remembrance of the past is always for the sake of the present and the future. Thus, he believes that the vantage point offered by Decoration Day should prompt reflection on themes of immediate national interests. Near the close of that 1882 address, he assesses the situation facing three particular groups, the Freedmen, the Chinamen, and the Hebrews warning Americans against persecuting any variety of the human family. For Douglas, a holiday never means a holiday from scathing criticism of American failings. Uh, as that antebellum 4th of July address shows, patriotism, real patriotism, means holding America's feet to the fire of its noble principles, criticizing the sons who betray the legacy of the fathers. Douglas fights hard for Decoration Day because he fears that once the real meaning of the conflict is lost, false accounts will be substituted and the freedmen will be forgotten and excluded. During the war, Douglas had done much to ensure African-American participation on the battlefield. He understood that the imputation of slavishness required not just a theoretical refutation through the doctrine of natural equality, but a practical refutation. That's the point of those lines from Lord Byron that Douglas slipped into just about every speech he gave. The lines go like this, hereditary bondmen, know ye not who would be free themselves must strike the blow. Freedom cannot be given. It must be taken. In their willingness to hazard life for liberty, those 180,000 black soldiers offer proof of an emancipated people's readiness for liberty. They stake a claim to citizenship. That claim was acknowledged in the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution in 1868 and 1870. Douglass, however, knew that much more would be required to make those solemn words a reality. Part of what was required was an education in citizenship for the newly freed people. Douglas offers such an education in his oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. The speech was given in 1876. Uh, the occasion was the dedication of the Freedmen's Monument. It was a statue of Lincoln that had been funded entirely from donations raised among the newly freed people, raising the money a penny at a time. Douglas regards Lincoln as a model statesman, and he conducts in this speech a kind of seminar for his largely black audience in how to assess a political figure. A figure who, as Douglas admits, Abraham Lincoln, was not either our man or our model. In his interests, in his associations, in his habits of thought, and in his prejudices, he was a white man. Nonetheless, Douglass also shows that Lincoln became our friend and liberator. Douglass offers a lesson in the fine art of political judgment, demonstrating the possibility of appreciation without idolatry and criticism without rejection. Interestingly, Douglass opens and closes the speech by stressing that in honoring Lincoln, African-Americans are doing highest honors to themselves. For the first time, they are performing, he says, a national act. They are officially expressing their gratitude, joining in the high worship of a great public man, and making their gratitude glorious by translating it into an enduring work of art. Douglass believes that the sentiment of gratitude is one of the noblest he says, that can stir and thrill the human heart. By giving evidence of this feeling in themselves, blacks are also refuting the slanders of those vicious whites who call them soulless and ungrateful. According to Douglas, just as one must prove oneself worthy of liberty, one must remember, admire, and express gratitude toward benefactors and toward the nation that is the home of those benefactions. Both of these positions are today contested, regarded as obnoxious even in some quarters. One shouldn't have to prove what one is entitled to, and gratitude toward America would be demeaning to express because it's undeserved, since the American past is utterly racist. Progressives, in general, I think are anti-gratitude. Although an exception is made for those few resistors worthy of celebration. Douglas of course, does celebrate the great resistors, like John Brown. But he also celebrates the founders and Lincoln, as we see in that Fourth of July speech and the oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln. Douglas had fought his way to an understanding and appreciation of the founding principles of the nation and its finest examples of statesmanship. Today, we are trying to come to terms with the result of the national forgetting and the distortions of history that Douglas had hoped to avert through the celebration of Decoration Day. I suspect that Douglas would sympathize with contemporary efforts to remove Confederate flags, Confederate statues from locations of public honor so long as the removals are done through legal means. I also suspect he would prefer resituating at least some of them to museums rather than outright destruction or mothballing them. However, it also seems to me that Douglass would be acutely aware of the dangers of this animus towards the disgraceful elements of our past spiraling out of control, turning into a generalized animus, leading to a deepening and pervasive sense of political alienation. In our current situation, there is no better counterweight to that tendency than the life and writings of Frederick Douglass, and especially, I I think, his oration in memory of Abraham Lincoln.
3: Good afternoon. I want to thank David for taking this opportunity to host this this powerful event. I also want to thank you for allowing me, a non-scholar for whom my wife often reminds me, uh, to sit among scholars. To uh, Dr. Myers and to Dr. Schaub, thank you so much for your work regarding Frederick Douglass. As stated, my name is Dean Nelson, and I do think about Mr. Douglas from an activist standpoint because that's typically what uh, I consider myself, although uh, I appreciate Douglas and have come to not just ask the question as I used to, what did Douglas do, but also what did Douglas think? Uh, I think that it is important, particularly in our generation, uh, to be reminded uh, that proverb that uh, says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And I believe that as you study Frederick Douglass, as I have, you can't think about him only as a person who was an abolitionist, someone who spoke to motivate people to action. But if you really study Mr. Douglass closely, you'll evaluate that he, in my mind, became uh, that scholar. And I think it's important for a generation of activists, particularly young people, to take a close look at Frederick Douglass in terms of who he actually uh, became. I believe that there is an evolution that you can recognize of Frederick Douglass, not just uh, a young teenager who actually tried to escape from slavery, but a young teenager who also had a powerful encounter with Jesus Christ. And I believe that uh, in our academic settings, sometimes it's easy to overlook uh, Douglas in terms of the impact that uh, his faith actually had. But I believe that it's my role uh, as I lead the Frederick Douglass Foundation and the Douglass Leadership Institute, particularly in the African-American community, to remind them of great men and women and where they got their start, and why they became the people that they became. In fact, it was my upbringing when I was actually just a teenager, when my mom came home with a stack of comic books, African American comic books, Golden Legacy. If you ever uh, read through uh, Picturing Douglas, which is a great book that I would refer, they have actually pictures of those Golden Legacy comic books, which were African American comic books that actually told the stories of people like Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., Harriet Tubman, Robert Smalls, and the list goes on. But for me, as a young man, when my mom brought home those comic books, something struck me, and that was that there was one particular person who actually had two comic books dedicated to him. That person was Frederick Douglass. And I thought as a young guy, why is there, Why are there two books dedicated to this person. And in my mind, it simply meant that he must have been an important guy. And so that was the start of my um, understanding and my exploration of Frederick Douglass. And I think it's important, as I see some young people who are here in this room, to talk talk not just about Frederick Douglass in terms of who he came to be, but who he was actually as a young person. Um, Diana may correct me, but I think it was Aristotle who said that all who have meditated on the art of governing mankind are convinced that the fate of empires rests upon the education of our youth. Me having those comic books started me early on in this exploration of Frederick Douglass and black history, I think in a context that helped me to be, in my mind, a a balanced person, not thinking that I should, uh, you know, retaliate against people, but understanding that that wasn't who Frederick Douglass was. That wasn't who Jesus actually was. And that's not who I became. Uh, As a radical student at Howard University, uh, there were times that I, as they were just recently, found myself in the administration building protesting, uh, of all things, uh, the um, uh, the the acquiring of Lee Atwater at that, that time the head of the Republican National Committee actually on the board of Howard University so I was part of that protest and now I become a proud Republican so you know who would have guessed but that speaks to the evolution of where we can go right how we can start in one place and begin somewhere else and I saw that as I began as I began to read and continue to read uh, and study about Frederick Douglass. He was a different person when he you know, uh, lived here in Washington, D.C., in Anacostia, uh, amassing wealth and giving a lot of that wealth away. He was a different person then than he was when he first started giving his speeches with the Garrisonians. And I believe that that would be a message. That certainly is a message that we convey with the events that we do at the Douglas Leadership Institute around the country, particularly to young people. Um, I think that Frederick Douglass might affirm and uh, to a degree encourage the modern Black Lives Matter movement, but I don't think that we can say in any wise that it would line up with Frederick Douglass's philosophy. Um, Frederick Douglass, as I stated, was a person of profound faith, and the Black Lives Matter movement today uh, actually does not – embrace an idea that we should at any wise forgive those who have done wrong to us. It's more the more wrong that you've done gives us more reason why we should be antagonistic towards uh, that those those people and the things that they have actually done uh, against us. I want to say as I have grown to love and appreciate Frederick Douglass, I pause and reflect on my own personal uh, evolution, starting as a uh, college student campus radical, um, I have begun to or I began to read and to explore more, uh, graduating ultimately from the University of Virginia, um, taking on a little bit of the ideals of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, how does one you know reconcile you know embracing uh, ideals of someone like uh, Jefferson and someone who is more radical in terms of his time period, like Douglas. But I think that if you really explore Douglas, ultimately you'll find that some of those things that they held were not incompatible. I believe that for us at the Douglas Leadership Institute, as we host events, we do three primary events. One, strengthening the black family. Two, we do criminal justice reform, which speaks to that justice. And three, economic and educational opportunity. So we host forums around the country focusing on these particular areas. I think it's really important for people to know that Frederick Douglass um, not only would make uh, quotes uh, that we've heard earlier about agitate, agitate, agitate as an activist, but he also would say things uh, regarding the family, like that it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. If you read Frederick Douglass's daughter, you'll find that she actually spoke very well of her father and her mother in terms of the training and the care that her, that their, her parents took to raise them in a Christian home, uh, requiring them to read scriptures at the dinner table, uh, demanding that they had the, uh, you know, the utmost comportment when they were uh, out in, in, in public. Those are some of the things that I believe that are important for Americans to know. In fact, one of the reasons that we launched uh, an initiative that we're doing is because, as my friend Colin Hanna will, will often remind me, we read an article in the Washington Post that were five myths about Frederick Douglass. And if you really want to bother somebody like me, a minister of the gospel who's kind of like you know a radical conservative, social conservative too, is to say that Frederick Douglass was not a pious Christian and maybe you can define define piety in certain ways but when you have really no evidence the only evidence that you suggest was that maybe he had books from other religions in his library that's not enough okay Certainly not for scholars, and this article was written in part by, you know, people that would be considered modern scholars. How can you argue that this man was not a pious Christian if this man actually had a divine encounter with God as a teenager? How can you argue that he's not a Christian if he actually quoted probably more from the Bible than any other source? How can you argue that he's not a Christian when he actually has papers to show that he was a licensed AME Zion minister of the gospel? My encouragement to those who we communicate with in terms of really finding out who Frederick Douglass was is to go back to the original source. I encourage people, you don't find many authors who wrote three autobiographies. So go read first narrative, if you like. Read My Bondage and My Freedom because Douglass wrote three of them for different reasons. His first audience in writing uh, narrative was essentially to tell the story about how horrible slavery was, and to let the abolitionist movement know that this is uh, this is a real horrible condition. This is really what slavery actually is. I mean, in, before uh, we had roots. I mean, s- <laughs> that book was really the narrative that helped to let people know how horrible the condition of slavery was. But Douglas felt like after growing up a little bit, he had more to say. Imagine that, Frederick Douglass having more to say. He had more to say, not just about a life in slavery, but now, my bond to my freedom, a life in freedom. How does a former slave now conduct himself living in an American society? But because he ended up living a long life, that's what I really ended up realizing why they were two comic books. Martin Luther King didn't live long enough to have two comic books. Mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass lived arguably a fairly long life, but he wrote the last one, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, where he expands on the first and the second autobiography. My encouragement with highlighting that simply is what we're communicating to people in this bicentennial year of Frederick Douglass is to get acquainted with this iconic American. I consider him to be the foremost, most formidable statesman in American culture to me because of what he overcame and who he he became. And in his last portion of his life, almost that defiance of Frederick Douglass that he seemed to carry all the way through was to even defy the law and to defy friends and sometimes family by marrying somebody who actually was white. I've talked to African-Americans who's like, I love Frederick Douglass, but that last part, that really that really stings. <laughs> so Frederick Douglass, even 200 years later, as we re-examine him, is still challenging uh, conventional thoughts and wisdom of those who would dare to embrace uh, his principles. So I want to thank you all for the opportunity to be before you as a, as a non-scholar. I'm looking forward to our discussion because I do believe that what we should be learning from Frederick Douglass should not just be held here in uh, wonderful auditoriums at the Heritage Foundation, but what Frederick Douglass's message was and who he was is desperately needed throughout every city every hamlet, every county in our culture, and it's my desire as a member of the commission to get that word to every aspect of American culture. Thank you.
2: We don't have much time for questions, so I would ask you... To pose your question quickly and we'll only have one panelist answer each question so we can get to two or three of them uh, if you put your hand up one of our interns will give you a microphone yes
3: yes my name is juliet adams and i really fell in love with frederick Douglass. here's my question frederick Douglass was a thinker above everything else he was a philosopher we need thinking presently here in the US. Why isn't Frederick Douglass put in that category, like Locke and the others, under which our uh, so many laws and
4: legislation has been done from? Thank you.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a good question but I think it is also being rectified uh Peter Myers right here has a book on the uh, political thought of Frederick Douglass. There are a couple of other new books out. I think that he is being recognized now as uh, part of that canon of um, American political thought and being taught in that context. So uh, I think you're right that there was uh, oversight of that for a long time, but I think that is starting to change.
2: Josh
3: Shepard with the stream. Um, Reverend Nelson, uh, you mentioned briefly that you were a member of the Frederick Douglass Bicentennial Commission, this uh, official uh, government body that's been uh, organized here lately. Um, what are the current issues that that body will be addressing? Um, you know, there was a talk of, you know, Frederick Douglass's perspective of fair field and no favor being his kind of perspective on government. And some would say that that doesn't perhaps exist on uh, every issue. Um, so... Good question. So I want to first say that the um, the wonderful, august body that we, we are, not everyone has actually been sworn in, so we haven't had an official meeting. But I will tell you that one of the greatest desires is to actually get uh, Frederick Douglass' book, Narrative, into the hands of as many young people, uh, the idea of creating a uh, new uh, generation of abolitionists uh, for our culture. So that's one of the things that um, they are – Definitely uh, going to push. The second thing that I would <clears throat> highlight that there's a desire to use um, kind of our modern um, challenges and problems uh, with, and one of those is human trafficking. And so there's a desire to be able to uh, address human trafficking uh, as an issue from the commission. So those are thoughts. They haven't been voted on uh, yet. So just to let you know that those are the ideas and the direction that I see that
5: the commission is headed. Gentlemen, here. <clears throat> Uh, both of your the, uh, or in fact all three of the panelists, really spoke of the uh, the, the social uh, conduct of Douglas in amongst the t- uh, challenges of the times. In a sense, um, the first speaker, Pete, we were talking about uh, uh, civic friendship, and you were talking about gratitude. And if I could say, it sounded like your, your opinion of Douglas is that he turned away from resentment towards reconciliation. And the question that I have for you for you is, do you attribute that to his Christian nature, and to what degree? Is it is it evident in your work? Do you write about his Christian nature in his work? What's the cause of this great humanitarianism, in your opinion, from him? And secondly, professionally, would you lose your standing in your careers if you brought up that point?
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'll take a crack at that. Um, on the last point no uh but no because you're writing about someone of the stature of Frederick Douglass i think um but um on the on the, the the larger point did uh do we think that Douglass's humanitarianism comes from his his christianity yeah in part i think it has two it has two broad sources uh Douglass was you know what the one that I emphasized was that Douglas was the, uh, the, the exponent of the natural rights idea, which is consonant with Christianity but doesn't depend on it. But Douglas also, I mean, really the way he learned to read was by reading scraps of the Bible, and uh, and that stays with him. And uh, and uh, as as, uh, as as Dean was saying, that the, uh, Douglas's speeches, his greatest speeches, are full of biblical references. And they're, they're really good. And the 4th of July oration is, I didn't have time to talk about that, but uh, um, but it's very powerful and very good. And he was waging this argument against the pro-slavery reading of Christianity, just like he was wa- waging an argument against the pro-slavery reading of the Constitution. So yeah, that's, that's an important thing.
0: Just a little bit on this. Uh, Yeah, Douglas is so remarkable. This thankfulness goes so far that he often expresses thankfulness towards the oppressors. So in telling the story of how he learned to read, he says, I owed as much to my master uh, who shut down my reading for the reason that if a slave learns to read, it will forever unfit him for freedom. And he says, that's the first anti-slavery lecture I'd ever heard. I, I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. You learn to read, and you can't be a slave any longer. He says, I owed as much to him uh, as to the kind mistress who taught him a little bit about the secrets of the alphabet. Uh, he says the same thing during the 1850s. He said uh, the Dred Scott decision, uh, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, all of these terrible things made him more certain that a better day was coming. So, the source of it must be some deep belief that the arc of the universe bends towards justice, so that even those who are doing wrong are somehow contributing to the victory of the right.
2: Ma'am, you'll get to ask the last question.
1: Um, I I hope I'm not misstating what Dr. Sharp said, but I thought she was kind of characterizing Frederick Douglass in terms of being a progressive Um, and when progressivism today is something different. Um, So I'm wondering if there is another um, adjective that would accurately (laughs) describe
0: Well, look. I mean, I was just—I was just quoting him there. He says, "Man is a progressive being," but you're right; that is very different, I think, from contemporary progressivism. So, I—I I did not know. I did not mean to imply. In fact, I—I was—I think trying to show some of the differences between his version of progress and the modern progressive version of it.
4: Could I say just one tiny thing? I think, in the spirit of Douglas, too, in the sense that Douglas. Uh, Did not like to surrender things Uh, Let's not surrender good words progress is a good word. You know progressive is a good word. Uh, It's being misused Let's not surrender it. let's uh, let's reclaim it Uh,
2: Well, we must adjourn but I'm sure if anyone else wants to talk to the panelists they'll be glad to stick around. Thank you everyone